Don, you've got all of these bees here. First of all, how many would you say you have right here? Complete estimation. A number of bees? Yeah. Well, we have about 10 colonies here. If there are uh, 20,000 bees per colony, that's 200,000 bees we have right here. Okay, so 200,000 bees right here. How on earth did they get here? Well, you can buy bees from other beekeepers if you want to, but I was fortunate in that I caught some bee swarms. Uh, when a beehive gets too crowded, half of them leave to find a new place to live. Okay. And we capture that bee swarm, it's called. They, they'll quite often land on a branch, and we'll go up to that branch and catch that swarm and bring it home with us. But if we don't get there in time, there are scout bees that go out from that swarm looking for a new home. Some will go that way, some will go that way, some will go that way, and they come back and tell the rest of the swarm about what they found by doing a waggle dance and being excited, okay? okay? And the waggle dance is kind of crazy because they dance in a circle, go like this, and they're really excited, and they wag their back in, which I will not show you. <laughs> <laughs> and they try to convince the rest of the group to go to their place. Okay. And each of those committees, each of those beast uh, scouts is doing that. Okay. And after they've done that, and they send other groups out to check it out, the one that's the most excited, does the dance the best, convinces the whole swarm to move to that place, and that's where they're going to live again. That's amazing. <laughs> that's amazing. <laughs> that's amazing. Don't you just love Nick's energy? So when a scout bee returns to the hive after finding a new place, they basically do a little dance. That's as much dancing as you're going to get out of me. I, just don't, I, I really don't dance. But he called it the, the waggle dance. And they'll do this because they've discovered something that is actually for the benefit of other people. Now, in the hive, they will dance enthusiastically because they've discovered something that they believe is a benefit to the hive and that they want the hive to examine what they found. Now that tips us off, if we think about it, to a couple of lessons about swarm intelligence generally, and what we're calling the hive mind, the mind of Christ specifically, that I want us to really catch a glimpse of right at the outset of our journey. And the first one is an obvious one, it's simply this. The mind of Christ is sacrificial. Now think about it. The scout's find is for the benefit of others. Now, the scout's role in the hive is to explore new home, to find a new home, to find food, to find water, and then to come back and to bring the good news to the community. Now, with that in mind, have a look at Romans chapter 12 and verse 1. These are the words of the Apostle Paul. He says this, Therefore, now, whenever there's a therefore, you have to remember what it's there for. We'll get to that in just a second. I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice. There we have the sacrifice idea. Therefore, in view of what Christ has done, offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God, because this is your true and proper worship. Therefore, what is the therefore, therefore? In 
Romans 11, verses 31 through 36, Paul talks about the goodness of God. He urges us, therefore, to live out of a response to what God has done. God, Paul says, has been so rich in His love towards us through Jesus that we have no way of repaying, ever repaying what it is that He's done. And so what do we do as a result of that, Paul says? Live as a living sacrifice. True worship, he says, the kind that pleases God is a type of worship that is lived out in response to Him and before other people. And we do it, he says, because some things are so important that we simply cannot keep it to ourselves. Put another way, some things are so important that we have to share them. In the 1950s, and Mercedes-Benz decided not to enforce its patent rights to crumple zones on a car. They allowed competitors to enjoy the technology because they felt that safety was more important than profit. In 1959, Volvo decided to open their patent rights to the three-point seatbelt, something we still enjoy in cars today, because they too believed that some things, safety, are too important to keep to yourselves. And as a result of that, hundreds of thousands, if not millions of lives have been saved. Why? Because some things are too important not to share. Some things are so important that you cannot keep them to yourself. Now, that's important in a land where personal freedoms, where individual rights are championed and understandably cherished. But if we want to join with God in the task of bringing heaven to earth, then we need the mind of Christ. We need to recognize that on certain things, we is more important than me. We need to recognize that God has saved us, not simply for us. He has saved me to plug me into a community, and this community is to join together to share something that is so important that we cannot keep it to ourselves. Now, me thinking is so prevalent that clearly something needs to shift if we're going to move from me to we. And the good news about Romans chapter 12 is that it doesn't stop in verse 1. It tells us how we shift from me to we. It tells us that the mind of Christ is transformational, and that transformation happens in our own minds. And so Paul continues in verse 2. Do not conform to the pattern of this world, because the pattern of this world is driven by me thinking. But, Paul says, be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Notice then that some kind of formation is happening in the first part of verse 2. It's either conformation or transformation. Con, the Latin prefix, means that you are going along with the formation of the world. And the formative patterns of the world cause us to think about me. But there needs to be a transformation. Trans is the Latin prefix that means to rise above. We're to rise above selfish thinking and move to sacrificial thinking. And how do we do that? By the renewing of our mind. Then, 
And only then will we be able to test and approve what God's will is, His good, His pleasing, and His perfect will. So Paul says, listen, to have the mind of Christ, our entire system of thinking needs to be changed. It needs to be renewed. It needs to be transformed. And that word transform is from the Greek compound word that basically means meta, a change of place or condition, or melee, which means to be concerned. In order for transformation to happen, we need to be concerned with changing the condition of our minds. Now, what is often missed in a study of Romans is how much Paul talks about the mind. Far too much of the conversation in Romans as we go through it is is driven by the ideas of sovereignty versus human responsibility. We'll talk about uh, the role of Israel in the world today, but we miss the point that Paul is making about the transformation of the mind. And so, in Romans, Paul talks about the mind. Right from the beginning, he talks about the corrupted mind, Romans 1, 18 through 32. Then he'll talk about the mind of faith in Romans chapter 6. Then he talks about the mind of the flesh in Romans chapter 7. Then he talks about the mind of the Spirit in Romans chapter 8. And then in this section, he talks about the renewed mind. The renewed mind. Paul's point is that when a person receives the gift of Christ... The old life, with its old way of thinking, with its corrupted fleshly mentality, with a darkened mind that needs the illuminating work of the Holy Spirit. When we become followers of Christ, we receive the mind of Christ, and that begins that process of transformed thinking, where we begin to learn how to live with the mind of Christ. And so through this series, our goal is very simple. We want to challenge ourselves as a church to consciously decide that as a body of believers, we are going to choose the mind of Christ. To consciously determine as a body of believers not to go along with the corrupted, darkened thinking of the world, but to rise above it and to consciously choose the mind of Christ in all things. The mind of Christ. And when we do that, what we mean by that is that there are four truths that we believe that we need to personally embrace. The first truth is simply this. We need to, an acrostic of the word mind, we need to make Christ's finished work our default reality. In other words, if we want to think with the mind of Christ, we need to remember that through the cross, Because of the resurrection, through the ascension, Jesus Christ now sits at the right hand of the Father interceding for you and for me. The battle is won. Death is defeated. Christ reigns. We make the finished work of Christ a default reality. Secondly, we insist, we insist on living by the very truth that we embrace the conversion. Ephesians 2, 8, 9, the Apostle Paul, we're not saved by anything we could do. We are saved by the grace, the love, and the mercy of God, lest any of us should boast. We insist, if we have the mind of Christ on living with these truths, 
knowing that N, there is nothing more important than God's perspective on our situation. There's nothing more important than that. Not past choices, not present circumstances. Nothing is more important than God's perspective because, you see, if we believe and know that God sees us, we will act as if God sees us and God knows. And lastly, D, we will determine, no matter what happens, to stand firm in our identity in Jesus Christ. We will make Christ's finished work our default reality. We will insist on living by the truths that we've embraced at conversion. We will determine and we will know that there is nothing that matters more than the way that God sees my situation right now. Indeed, we will determine to stand firm in our identity in Christ because nothing can separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus. And tell you what, church, if, if we insist on doing these four things, our lives will change. Our lives will change. And then we'll notice something happening. What is happening individually is now starting to happen collectively, and the hive mind starts to become our experience because our collective thoughts, our ideas, the beliefs of this church, the responses of this church to to calamity, to friction, is going to be directed by the Holy Spirit as we function together as an expression of the mind of Christ. And when that starts to happen, when we start to live sacrificially, we continue to be transformed, something else happens. What happens is our possession of the mind of Christ will actually lead us to the mission of Christ. That's why this is so important. Paul in 2 Corinthians chapter 5 writes some incredible words in verses 11 through 21 that we've kind of summarized for you right here on the screen. Look at these words. They kind of encapsulate everything that he said in Romans And they put it out there. Since Paul says, we know what it is to fear the Lord, we try to persuade others. And why would we do that? Why would we come back to the hive and tell other people what we have experienced? Why? For Christ's love compels us. Because we are convinced that one died for all, and he died for all. And that those who live should no longer live for themselves, but for him who died. And he has committed to us this message of reconciliation. And so we implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. Why would we do this? Because Christ's love compels us. I love that word compelled. It is from the Greek word that basically means being pressed or forced or pushed together. And so it's used here by Paul to speak of being seized or controlled by the Holy Spirit with the result that we are being driven back towards other people. Isn't that the experience of the scout bee? Something in its DNA forces it when it has discovered something that is so great that it has to be shared. It goes back to the hive, and it does this enthusiastic dance because some things are just too important to keep to yourself. Now, get this. No bee in that hive watching that scout bee do his little dance ever decides on going to that new location without having expected, inspected it first. 
In other words, they don't just take the scout bee's word for it. The little bee is basically in there. He's doing his little dance, and, and another bee will look at the dance and, and then will be so captivated by the dance, by the behavior of this scout bee, that it will accompany this scout bee to the new location and then see for itself whether this location is to believe, be believed or not. And then they'll return to the hive, and if this new bee is convinced of what the scout bee is telling them, guess what? They join the dance, and now one becomes two, and the process repeats itself. And I'm told that it takes about 50 bees doing this enthusiastic dance for a hive to relocate. But how does it all begin? It all begins because one person, one bee, decides to do what it was created to do dance. Let me let you into a secret. I can't dance. I really can't dance. I realize that's like saying I can't sing. Everybody can sing, right? But not everybody can sing in tune. Well, I can't dance. I really got into the wrong line when God was giving out the dancing gene. I am self-conscious and I am uncomfortable. My problem is that in Europe, I got into the wrong profession to avoid dancing altogether. Can you actually believe that, by the way? See, in Europe, what would often happen is that at a wedding, a Christian couple would basically have a church service as a wedding. So the weddings can last 60 minutes, 90 minutes long. Can you believe that? The first wedding I went to in the States lasted seven and a half minutes. I thought I'd gone to a different planet. I was like, what? In Europe, you see, people don't go to church, and so a Christian couple recognized there is no greater time to actually expose people to the covenant relationship that is at the heart of my marriage than this wedding ceremony. And so they will, there will be worship. There will be expression. There will be a message. And then afterwards, there'll be the reception. And at the reception, invariably, on a numerous points in time, what would happen? You know the scenario, right? The bride and the groom do the first dance. But on some occasions, the pastor and the first lady have to accompany them. I can't dance. The problem is I got into the wrong profession to avoid it completely. Now, my most embarrassing dance was, <laughs> was really embarrassing. Vip goes like, you're not going to share that, are you? Yeah, why not? It happened. <laughs> there was a Turkish-German lady who grew up in an Islamic family, found Christ, and married an, a Canadian-German, and uh, this, this lady's family weren't even sure that they were going to attend the wedding. One of our biggest prayer requests was that the father would actually walk the bride down the aisle. And praise God, he did. The family came. We were rejoicing. But then came the reception. The father decided, I think, to have his own back. He basically put uh, the bride and the groom and uh, me on stools in the middle of the floor and in proceeded to walk Turkish belly dancers. Folks, I did not know where to look. <laughs> Seriously. It was like, oh no, this is, the most, this is the most embarrassing, uncomfortable moment I've ever had. But possibly worse than that, or one that lives in my memory just as long is when again, Vipka and I were asked to accompany the bride and groom in a dance, and thank God it was a slow dance rather than anything I had to move rhythmically to. But obviously, my awkward, uncoordinated state, uncoordinated, 
uncoordinated state was so obvious because another pastor came up, tapped me on the shoulder, and basically said, it is really good to see someone who is as uncomfortable on the dance floor as I am. <laughs> I can't dance. While I loved weddings, I hated the receptions because I may have to dance. If you've been around church for any length of time, then you will know that once you become a follower of Jesus, there's certain things that you need to do. You need to dance. Not literally, although I'm sure Nate and Bree and Hannah would love that. But you've got jobs. And if we're honest, there are times when we can approach these jobs, like telling other people about Jesus, more like I approach dancing than others would approach it. We can approach those things more with a dreaded fear than we can with joyful exuberance. What do we do when that is our state? What do we do? What do you do when some of the requirements of following Jesus, some of the requirements of just expressing the mind of Christ, doing these things together, fill us with dread and fear? Because we just think we're not wired that way. What do we do? I think the first thing that we do is stop thinking that I have to, so I will, even though I don't want to, is the right response. Some of you need to hear that. We stop thinking, I really need to do this, but I don't want to do this, so I'll do it anyway. You do that for long enough, and you will burn out, and your faith will become more like a religion of do's and don'ts than it is a relationship. Now, there are certain circumstances when you want to do something that you know you shouldn't do, and the best thing that you can do in that moment is not to do it, and that's the right thing. But the lasting solution is not to think, I should, but I don't want to, so I will, is right, because it's wrong. The lasting solution is to examine why I, as a child of God, a partaker in the divine nature, find doing child of God things so hard. Because something isn't right in my mind or in my experience, if that's what I'm living with. And so, second, we have to deal then with the source of reluctance. For some of us, it could be circumstantial. We find doing child of God things, expressing the mind of Christ together, so difficult because life is so difficult. Maybe for you, you're in here today, and this is your experience. Lamentations 5. The joy of my heart has ceased. My dancing has been turned into mourning. That's real. And you know, in situations where mourning seems more appropriate than dancing, this is when we remember that nothing matters more than God's perspective on my situation right now. God sees me, God loves me, God knows me, and God will never let me go. And if I believe that God knows me, God loves me, God sees me, and He has seized me, then I will act like God sees me, and God knows me, and God loves me. Friends, there have been so many times in my Christian life when I have not felt like dancing. Days when I found it so hard to put one foot in front of another one. And then in those days, some of the hardest walks 
that I've ever had to take is from my seat to the pulpit because my soul is broken. My soul is wounded. But after, what, 27 years in ministry, I'm still here. And you know why? Because I honestly believe that God knows me, God sees me, God loves me, and God will take care of me. And so even on those days when it's difficult to do, I make the choice to put one step in front of another. On those days where my dance seemed more like a slow dance than hip, than hip hop, I still danced. Why? Because God knows me, God loves me, and I have determined not to make anything other than God's perspective on my situation as my operating reality. And when you do that, you can take the next step. And my encouragement to those of you who are in that season is keep walking. Just know that God sees you, God loves you, and God will never let you go. Make that conscious decision in your mind. I think for other, others here, though, it, it's not circumstantial. It may well be spiritual. That is, we really struggle to join in the dance because we question our own relationship with God, and we find ourselves thinking, how can I express the mind of Christ together with other people when I've got so many questions in my mind? Now, doesn't this seem logical? Doesn't this seem understandable? Surely I have to be fully convinced of everything before I'll do anything, or before even I'll do the right thing. Friends, while that may seem like an understandable response on the surface, it actually confuses two realities of any healthy relationship. The first reality is that any relationship begins when we come together, but that the relationship grows as we stick together and grow together. Not doing the right thing because we are questioning, we're questioning something may seem wise, but it doesn't help us grow. We're confusing coming together and growing together. Now, let me explain that like this because this is such an important concept. Next week, Vipka and I will finally celebrate our 25th wedding anniversary. Next year, we will be, have been married 25 years. Now, it should be self-evident to anybody who's met my wife that my wedding day did not stop my desire for my wife. Our coming together did not quench my desire for us to grow together. Now, that said, think about how intimate my marriage would be, how cherished Vipka would feel if I continually questioned whether our marriage was actually real. How do you think she'd feel? How do you, intimate do you think our marriage would be? What do you think would happen if I would continue to request marriage even after expressing and experiencing the wedding? Now, if I came into your office and I told you, hey, I'm really struggling to believe that I'm married, so I'm thinking of asking Vipka to marry me again, not renew my vows, but to marry me again, if you'd hear me, you'd say, Craig, there's one or two things going on here. Either A, you've got cognitive issues, right? Or B, you've got a real lack of trust in the system, buddy. Because the reality is, folks, I am 100% married. Believe me, I know. I'm married. Believe me, I know. 
And I know because of all of the hoops that Vipka and I had to jump through in order to get married. See, Vipka is German. And if you know anything about Germany, they are overregulated. Now, in a red nation like ours, that's not a good thing, right? I remember moving to Germany uh, for the first time, and somebody came up to me and said, do you want to understand Germany? I said, sure. He said, let me tell you a joke. And the joke went like this. There was a Brit, an American, and a German stranded together on a desert island. After a few hours of getting bored, they decided to climb the highest peak and to see what was there. And so they climbed this highest mountain together, and when they got to the top, they saw this big, open, green field. It was incredible. The American looks at it and said, that's amazing. Let's build a baseball field. The Brit looks at him and laughs and says, ha, baseball is for people that can't stand for five days. We need to build a cricket field. And the German stood there silent. And the Brit and the German look at, uh, the Brit and the American look at the German and said, what do you want to do? And the German says, keine Genehmigung, which basically means no authority. The idea is, unless you have permission, you can't do a thing. And so they told me this illustration to, to basically get my head around the fact that Germany is overregulated. More books have been written, apparently, on the German tax system than all of the other ta books written on every other tax system in the world. So when I wanted to marry Vipka, I walked into the registry office to post my bans. Did any of you understand a word I said then? B-A-N-N-S, bans. When you get married in Britain, you post your bans for 28 days. Bans is a Middle English word used hundreds and hundreds of years ago. They're still kind of used today. That basically means proclamation. In order to get married, you need a proclamation. And back then, you would go to the parish church. You would tell the priest and the vicar that you wanted to get married. They would post your name and the name of the couple in the church bulletin, and it would be in there for 28 days. And if nobody objected to the wedding after 28 days, then you could get married. I think it's three days in Michigan, right? 28 days where I come from. So I went into the registry office to post my bands, and they said, okay, what's the name of the person you're marrying? And I said, Vipke Petra, uh, Vipke Petra Muller, and they said, what? Yeah, I had to spell it, W-I-B-K-E, and they were like, Vipke, Vipke, no, do it phonetically. They wrote it down, and they said, oh, this is going to be fun. She's German? And I said, she's German, and they said, oh, no. The, the clerk left the office, went and got another two or three people, came back into the office, went to the cabin and pulled out this massive book for marrying someone in Germany, and then basically pulled out a checklist that was longer than my arm. I thought, what on earth is happening here? So then we did it. 28 days, nobody objected because nobody knew her, right? Um, and, and then basically went over to Germany. We had to do the same thing. And I'm really glad those clocks were so thorough because they went into the, into the closet again, pulled out this file and pulled out the same checklist and went through it line by line by line by line, objecting whenever they could. So when I tell you, I know I married, I know I married. Unlike many of you who posted your bands for three days, ours was posted for 56. I'm married. In Germany, you can't get legally married in a church. You can only get legally married in the courthouse. So we got legally married on the 24th of September in the courthouse, and then we did our church wedding on the 25th of September in the church. And because I was pastoring in Wales, we did the whole thing six days later in front of everybody in Wales. Folks, I'm married. 
But imagine what would happen in our relationship if I would actually say to Vibka, hey, you know what? I, I, I'm not sure that we're married. She'd say, Craig, you've either got the screw loose up here or you don't trust the system. Craig, we are totally married. But how intimate do you think my marriage would be if I would continue to question the legitimacy of my coming together in the eyes of God and in the eyes of the law? It wouldn't be intimate, would it? There would be something there because I'm questioning what the law has made right. I'm questioning the written law. I want to suggest to you, it is going to be really, really, really hard for you to get enthusiastic about the mission of Christ if you continue to question the validity of you coming together in Christ. The written word tells us the basis for a person becoming a child of God. Romans 3.23, we acknowledge that we have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Romans 6.23, this is what Paul does. We recognize that the wages of sin is death, but that the gift of God is life, eternal life to all who believe. Romans 10.9, we confess with our mouth, we believe in our heart that God has raised Jesus from the dead, and Paul says, you will be saved. That's what the written word says. How intimate is our relationship with God going to be if we continue to question whether that is actually true for me? How much more intimate could our relationship with God be? How much more change could there be? How much more energy and enthusiasm could there be if we would just believe that what God's Word says is? See, the only way for my marriage to deepen would be for me to consciously choose to embrace my wedding. Friends, the only way for us to get our enthusiasm back, for the intimacy with God to flow, is for us to accept, for us to accept and to embrace the fact that because we have put our faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, we are His children. See, enthusiasm flows when we stop questioning the reality of Christ's finished work in our own life, and we start believing death is defeated, the battle is won, and my victory is coming. That's the mind of Christ. See, just as marriage initiates a new relationship and romance deepens it, so salvation initiates a new creation, and developing the mind of Christ transforms it. Mind of Christ I make the finished work of Christ my default reality. I insist on living by the truths that accepted me at conversion. I remember that there is nothing more important than seeing my situation in the way that God does. And I determine that I will not allow anything other than my identity in Christ to drive my actions. The mind of Christ. We have the mind of Christ. Last week... Steve unpacked this for us. What I've been focusing on today is basically this section. We have the mind of Christ. We hold, we hold a Christ-centered wisdom together. Secondly, we currently possess the mind of Christ. If we've made the Roman road our own experience, we have the mind of Christ. So the question is, will we consciously choose it? Will we consciously choose it? Will we consciously choose to make the finished work of Christ our default reality? 
Will we consciously choose and insist on living by the truths that we embrace the conversion? Will we consciously embrace the truth that nothing matters more than, our pers- than God's perspective on our situation? Will we consciously determine to stand firm in our identity in Christ, not on our past choices, not on our current crisis, nor, nor on our present circumstances? If we do, then there will be change. One of the exciting things for me about being in Central in a season like this is how many people are actually de- choosing to determine to make Christ's finished work their default reality. And see, because they're doing that, there's transformation. There's real change. Now, that doesn't mean that everything is great from that moment on. It means that God is changing them one day at a time, one step at a time. And I thought about how, how can I best show you this? And I thought about telling you a story, but you know, I thought the best way to do that is is the way that Central does it best. It's basically to just demonstrate, to put it out there for you, and for you to see and hear for yourself what happens when people commit to making the finished work of Christ their default reality. And so what's going to happen right now, the team are going to come back, they're going to sing a song that you're very familiar with, and during the song, you're going to hear a number of stories from people who have committed to make the finished work of Jesus their default reality. Some of them have been in the church for a long time, but as they got to that point, God did an incredible work. Some of them found faith in this ministry, and as they basically embraced Christ, Christ started the work of transforming them. And my encouragement is, as you hear their story, make their example your experience. Consciously choose to embrace the finished work of Jesus and watch Christ change you.